You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Isaiah 2 verse 1, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, as we work our way through these passages that, Father, you'd be pleased to teach us. And pleased, O Father, to lead our hearts, to open our hearts, O Father, to receive that which, Lord, you purpose to teach and to reveal in these passages. O Father, help us, O Lord. Help us to take it all in. And O Father, we pray that, Lord, you also help us to align our lives by what is clearly put forth here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our, our text, I chose just to read verses 1 through 5. We're, event, we're going to eventually read all of it, but our text this morning actually runs all the way through chapter 4. So I'm thinking if we're on schedule, we should be done with chapter 2 about noon. Chapter 3 should be maybe 1 o'clock. We'll try to get you out here by 2.30 if that's all right. Just want to make sure you're all paying attention. Um, it, he's going to return, so that's... He'll, he'll, be, he'll be returning here. Um, no, he could. I mean, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? How many would like that? <laughs> I mean, um, that would be great. Um, but the, the section, just a little bit of housekeeping in all seriousness, we have two, like, grand messages of hope. In fact, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah is one of the brightest places in the, in the Old Testament and we could even add to that one of the brightest places in all of the Bible, uh, verses 1 through 5 there. And we find it again in chapter 4. In fact, the entire chapter, say verse 1, is another one of those really bright places. So we have these two bright texts, if you will, and separating those two bright texts are texts that are almost as dark as they are bright. And the reason I'm choosing to take this whole thing at once is because we need to take this as an entire section. I'm not saying we couldn't take some time out and look at some of these verses more closely, but I think you'll agree with me. Who wants to spend week after week in these really dark places? I, I don't think that's, I don't think we need to do that. I don't think it's necessarily healthy for us to do that. So we're going to take it all at once. And what I'm really going to try to do is just give you kind of a running commentary of these verses and We'll try to take in the clear. There's a very clear message in these passages, and uh, we, we need to fasten to that clear message. Too often, 
What we fasten on when we look at texts like this is we try to figure out, okay, how's the end times going to come? How's this going to, you know, does this speak of the millennial period? Does this speak of the church age? Does this speak of the consummation? If any, if, if none of that means anything to you, that's fine because we're not going to focus on that so much this morning because quite frankly, that's not the purpose necessarily of this text anyway. And a lot of times when we do that, we kind of run off to the side and we park and we miss the very clear message that's being uh, that's being spoken of. There is a really clear message here that I think we're going to see uh, in a few minutes. I think it's going to become clear quite quick, quickly. Now let's dive in. We've got a lot of verses to get through. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, notice that Isaiah says there, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, heard, right? The word that he saw. You know, it's interesting. Wouldn't you expect him to say it's the word that he heard, it's the word that he saw. And, you know, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, you know, there we're told the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw. And some of this, obviously, Isaiah gets by way of vision. Um, Isaiah 6 maybe is one of the most famous passages where Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his throne in the temple. You know, there he's seeing um, a vision, if you will, um, partial manifestation manifestation of Christ's glory, actually, is what he sees there. Um, but uh, it could be said that he sees, even though um, sometimes he just merely perceives in his inner uh, being, if you will, because sometimes we speak that way, don't we? You know, when we say, "Why?" Well, you know, I, I'm, we, could, we could say that we see things that we're not necessarily seeing like we see each other, but we're perceiving them. You know, he is perceiving them. And it's really, we can spend a lot of time on this. We don't have time this morning, but it's a great thought, you know, of how God inspires the prophet to speak, how God inspires, you know, the, the biblical author to write, you know. He impresses his message upon them, whether it be through vision or whether it be through simply this inner perception, never compromising the personality of the author, but utilizing the personality of the author to write these things down, all along superintending the writing so that the outcome is indeed his message. It's really fascinating, is it not? And this is what we have, the word of the verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Now, pay real close attention to the word concerning. Now, why is that such an important thing? Because Isaiah is initially giving this word to a particular audience. Okay, that audience is not the United States. <laughs> That's why I point this out. I don't know how many times, I haven't heard messages on, on these passages in a long time, but I can't tell you many messages that I've heard that almost sounded like it was the word concerning the United States, not concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I don't know that that's as popular now as it once was, but through the 20th century, that was very popular, almost to where, you know, it sounds like the prophecy was given initially to the United States instead of Israel. Some of you, some of you get it. I know you, you, you're getting it. Some of us maybe didn't hear a lot of those messages, and that's fine. I don't recommend them. Um, however, what we want to fasten onto here is that Isaiah is speaking to a particular audience. Who is the audience? It's very clear. It's Judah and Jerusalem. Who are Judah and Jerusalem? People of God at that time in the southern kingdom. And we need to continually remind ourselves as we go through this passage that the Lord's not speaking through Isaiah to the world. 
He's speaking to the people of God. In this dispensation, it's the people who are in covenant in the southern kingdom. In our own dispensation, it's the church, isn't it? This is a message primarily for the church, if you will, not for the world, although there's plenty of application for the world. It's going to be jarring as we go through this, as we consider that. It's also a prophecy that's given at a particular time. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it's in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, all of whom were kings of Judah. What's that mean? Well, it means it's given at a time Uzziah was, you know, under Uzziah's reign, you know, Judah prospered. They become very, very wealthy. We'll see that as we plow through chapter 2. It was a time of great material prosperity. Um, and the time frame here is roughly Uzziah dies, I think, in 740, if my memory serves me right, approximately 740, uh, through most of the commentators will say through 681 BC. So this is happening approximately 700 years before Christ is when this prophecy is taking place. So it's, to, it's given to a particular audience at a particular time and a particular place. What's the place? Judah, Jerusalem. So we need to keep that in mind as we plow through this. Now, when we get to verse 2, we're told it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, many of us, when we look at latter days, we're going to immediately import the New Testament uh, meaning of the latter of days into this. Let's try to, let's, for, it's not necessarily wrong to do that, but for a moment, let's kind of put that aside. Because if we were the original audience listening to this, what would we think of the latter days? Some future time. Some future time. Um, okay, it shall come to pass in some future time, uh, the latter days. Okay, what shall come to pass? That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, we're dealing with poetry here. We're dealing, dealing with figurative language. What is meant by the mountain of the house of the Lord being lifted above all the other mountains. What is meant by that? Well, you know, if you read the Old Testament and you read especially a lot of the indictments of false worship, where was the false worship and the false, the false sacrifices and stuff being done? Does anybody remember? Being done in the high places. What's up with that? Well, it was believed that the higher you could go up in the elevation, the closer you were to the gods. And that's not something that's reserved just for the ancients. I mean, we have a phrase that you hear from time to time, mountaintop experience. What do we mean by a mountaintop experience? You know, generally that's an experience where we have, you know, we have a close experience with God. Now, that doesn't mean we were actually on a mountaintop when we had that experience. You could be having that experience in, you know, in your basement. Uh, now, if your house is way up on a hill, I guess that... But I think you understand what I mean. What, what's going on with this imagery? And in fact, if we just keep reading it, it explains itself. You know, um, it shall come to pass, verse 2, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law or the teaching, if you use the margin, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What's going on here is the Lord is being established in the hearts of the peoples of the world. 
And they're seeing the Lord as the only true God. They're beginning to see the Lord for who he is. They're beginning to see the Lord's teaching for what it is. And what are they doing? They're, they're moving towards it. So here we see this, this massive, if you will, migration of the peoples towards the word of the Lord, towards the instruction of his word. And, and what could, you know, let's make application. What are they interested in? They're interested in this. You know, this is one of the marks, you know, uh, of saving faith, if you will, is that we're interested in God's word. You know, we had a conversation, I think it was Donald and I maybe had, had a conversation. I had a conversation with somebody Friday night in regards to that. I think Donald was, it was you. You know, and that's one of the marks of saving faith is a hunger for God's word, not a hunger for some mountaintop experience. Mountaintop experiences are wonderful and they come from time to time and I hope we get plenty of them. But the day in and the day out is spent in God's word and in his teaching and instruction. And you'll notice that it says that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the nations are going to flow to what? The teaching of the Lord. Where do we learn the teaching of the word? The Lord. We learn it in his word, do we not? And, you know, we could stop right here because this message is given to the people of God. And we could ask ourselves this question right now. Do you have a hunger for God's word? You know, and I, I'm, I'm rejoicing because I know that that's the case with probably all of you. You wouldn't be sitting here. Uh, you're certainly not coming in here because the pastor's tall and handsome. That's not the case. <laughs> right? Your laughter gives you away. You're saying, that's right. And that's fine. Um, that is fine. Let's get back to our text. Look at verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When Tammy and I met that young lady yesterday at uh, Kylie's basketball game, I was thinking of verse 4 as she was talking about her husband being aboard a ship and is going to be aboard this ship for a year. And I was thought, wonder where that ship is, you know. Um, that... These ships are part of our, our military, you know. And what do we have in verse 4? What we have in verse 4 is a promise that all of these weapons, you know, this idea of beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, that's taking the weapons of that day and transforming them into farm implements. Why would they do that? Because they don't need them anymore. It's a message of peace. And let's quit trying right now to try to wonder when that's going to happen and get caught up like, oh, is this the millennial age? Is this the church age? Let's forget about that for a minute. Let's try to take our minds and forget about all of that. And let's, let's let the clear teaching be the clear teaching. This is going to happen in the future. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I know it will. Isn't that a wonderful message? This is going to happen in the future. That's what we need to focus on right now because that's what's clearly being taught. Look at the, towards the end, nation, the end of verse four there. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the future. That's the future for the people of God. Look at verse five. O house of Jacob, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
Now, I've stolen the title of this morning's message right from verse 5, and I've done it because verse 5, I think, is at the center of chapters 2 and 4, all the way from 2 to 4. I think that is the center. What is the call here? The call here is to walk in the light of the Lord. That is the call. Does that make sense? Let us walk in the light of the Lord. See the beautiful future that's ahead. Come, let us flock to the mountain that's been exalted. In other words, let us flock to the Lord. Let us sit under his teaching. Let us drink of these things. May our hearts be filled with hope because this is what's going to happen. He's going to usher in a time of peace. There's not going to be no need for husbands to leave their families and be on a ship or or moms to leave their family and be on a ship for a year away from their families because those ships are going to be transformed into something else. Does that make sense? So beautiful. This is, this is such a bright... It, the temptation is to spend all morning on this, and we could spend a couple mornings on this, but we have to take this in its context. There's a context here, and verses 6 through the rest of the chapter have, I think, largely been avoided by the church. Chapter 3 certainly has. Um, there's reason for it. As we start plowing through these verses, we're going to say, boy, this is not so pleasant. I will agree. If you're thinking as we're going through it that it's not so pleasant, let me tell you it's not so pleasant standing here doing it either. But we need to do it. As bright as verses 1 through 5 is, 6 through the end of chapter 3 all the way into verse 1 of chapter 4 is equally dark. If you look at verse 6, for you have rejected your people the house of Jacob. Okay, having given a future for the people of God, having presented a future, now Isaiah's focus is on the present reality of the people of God. What is the present reality? God has rejected them. What does that mean? That means God has lifted his hand of protection from them and that he has closed his listening ears. You know, at least at that point, that's what is meant here. Notice the word because in verse 6. That's an important word. Why would God do this? Well, because they're full of things from the east. What's that mean? That means they're trusting in other worldviews other than the one God has given them through Moses. That's what that means. They're trusting in all these other worldviews. Again, we're not, this is not a word to the world. We shouldn't find that. Nobody should be surprised by that. What the surprising thing is, this is the people of God who are doing this. Does that make sense? They're full of the things from these. So they're trusting in all these other worldviews. They're bringing all these other worldviews in, if you will, and mixing them together, if you will, with the worldview that God has given them. They're trusting in fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. I don't know what striking hands means in this context. And I think the best, the better commentators on Isaiah admit that they don't know what it means either. I think it's lost to us. It could be just simply shaking hands in a commercial contract. It could be something like that. It probably is something like that, but we're not sure. Um, there's a couple of commentaries I have in my office that said, listen, we, we feel that perhaps at least at the moment, this phrase is kind of lost to us, the meaning of it. But it's probably shaking hands uh, and like a commercial agreement. But what's clear is, look at verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Well, God is rejecting them. Why? Because they're trusting in their wealth. The storehouses are full of gold, and they're full of silver. And that is really, I mean, it is one of the temptations, isn't it? You know, I had a conversation with a businessman here not long ago, 
Um, he's a pretty successful businessman. And we were talking about addiction and um, he was talking, you know, talking about this. And, and I said, listen, you know, I, let, let me shine a ray of hope in here. You know, yeah, I mean, our, the problem with drugs and addiction of all stripes is it's running rampant in our culture. But let's shine some light into that. I said, you know, I, I can usually have a better spiritual conversation with somebody that recognizes there's nothing else. I mean, that's oftentimes, you know, when we find ourselves strung out or whatever it might be, you talk with folks, they'll usually pretty quickly confess if there's nothing else. If there's nothing else, then, you know, we might as well be like the Apostle Paul, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. But when you talk with people and everything's going good in their lives and everything is just wonderful and their bank accounts are full and, you know, there's three cars in the driveway and blah, 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 blah. It's sometimes next to impossible to have a spiritual conversation with them. And that was my point with this businessman. You know, a lot of times you can have, you, you can, I think, have a way better conversation with somebody. It's the opposite of what you think it would be. Now, what's going on? Well, the dangers of silver and gold, the dangers of treasure. Their, their storehouses are full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Look at the, the second half of verse 7. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. What's that? They've amassed a big army. They've got a boatload of money and cash, and they've got a big army. Now, these are, these are things that the, the kings were warned against in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 17. Very strictly forbid the king to do this, to amass these storehouses and to amass these big armies. Why was he forbidden to do this? Because of the tendency to trust in these things instead of the Lord, which is exactly what we have happening. They didn't listen, and here's where they're at. They're trusting in their armies. They're trusting in their wealth. They're trusting in fortune-telling. They've brought in all of these um, false worldviews, if you will. Um, verse 8, their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Here they're trusting in human achievement. They're trusting in human achievement. What's the outcome? Verse 9, so man is humbled. Each one is brought low. Notice the line there that's really puzzling. Isaiah says, do not forgive them. You say, whoa, what do you mean by that? Do not forgive them. And some of our study Bibles say that um, Isaiah is done with his generation, you know. I don't know that I'm going to buy that. Um, I, that doesn't mean it isn't true just because I don't buy it. The authors of those study notes could probably care less whether I buy it or not. But I really don't think I buy it. Um, I think what's going on here more so, if we think about when does God withhold forgiveness? He withholds forgiveness when we refuse to come to him and repent. That's when he holds forgiveness. And I think what's in view here is a lot of these people are just going to stay this course. They're going to stay this course. They're going to continue to trust in fortune-telling. They're going to continue to trust in, in idols. They're going to continue to trust in wealth. They're going to continue to trust with what they can see and physically touch instead of the promises of God. And there is no forgiveness for them. I, I think that's more what's in view here. So take that as my own personal opinion. If you look at verse 10, enter into the rock and hide into the dust. Okay, man is humbled here. These proud, rich people who have these big armies. Where are their big armies? They're hiding into the rocks and hiding into the dust. They're being reduced to ground moles. 
It's ground moles. Yeah, I saw a ground mole the other day. You know, it, it, it really made me think of this, you know. He, he kind of come up and he was kind of looking around and then right back down into his hole. We're not supposed to live like that as image bearers of God. We're not supposed to be crawling into holes, crawling into clefts of rock. But this is what they're going to be reduced to. Enter into the rock. Hide in the dust from before what? The terror of the Lord from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted. These haughty looks, this proud heart, if you will, is going to be brought low. Again, not talking about the world, not talking about some, you know, unbelieving sports star that's full of himself. It's talking about the church, right? We expect the unbelieving sports star who's always heard you're the greatest all his life. We expect him to be full of himself or her full of herself. But this is talking about the church, isn't it? The people of God are, are behaving like ground moles because they're trusting in the wrong things. Verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day. Just as he has a day where there's going to be peace ushered in, he also has a day. This is certain in the future. And it's against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Then we have some poetry here. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. These magnificent trees are seen as of symbols, if you will, of strength, aren't they? They're going to be brought low. If you look at verse 14, the lofty mountains and all the uplifted hills. You know, the mountains sometimes are used as emblems for God. God is a rock, isn't he? Says the psalmist. God is my rock. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. We have that refrain going on. Um, but here we see that even the mountains aren't going to be able to stand. Now let's think about it. The ground moles that are running into the mountains, thinking the mountains are going to keep them safe. The mountain isn't safe. How's the little hole you're crawling in going to be safe? Verse 15, against every high tower and every fortified wall. Okay, the high towers that they make to protect themselves, the fortified walls that they make, these fortresses. If the mountains aren't going to keep them safe, how are these things that they've made going to keep them safe? Against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. Here's an image of economy. Their great economy is not going to be able to save them. That economy that where they developed all of their, um, their gold and silver and amassed their militaries from, that is not going to be able to save them. Verse 17, the haughtiness of a man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The idols shall surely pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rock. Again, in the holes of the ground, uh, like ground moles, if you will, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter into the caverns of the rocks and clefts of the hills from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. A couple of things I want to point out here. One is their idols are not going to be able to save them. They're going to see them as worthless as they're crawling into their holes. Secondly, notice this refrain we have here, the terror of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty. We find it in verse 10. We find it in verse 19. 
We find it in verse 21, three times, for emphasis. Now, verse 22 is a summary. If you look at verse 22, what's the message there? Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? Now, if you take verse 22 and you go back to verse 5, here we have a, a clear message starting to emerge. We're giving this great vision of the future for the faithful, right? When is it going to happen? I don't know, but it will happen. It's certain. It's going to happen. Okay, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the message we're given in verse 5, right? That's pretty clear. Verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? These political candidates that are coming up can't save us. I'm not saying it's not important to try to choose the best one of the bunch, but they're men and they're women. They can't save us. They're promising to. But really, they're just like the zillion of others who have come before them who have promised to. Only the Lord can save us, right? Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, would you really want to spend weeks in this? Like two, three weeks in this? Aren't we glad to kind of... Probably some of you are saying, hey, let's speed it up a little bit. I'd like to get done with it now. Not much longer. Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord of God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah, and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water. Everything that's necessary for life and social function is about to be taken away. Verse 2, the mighty man and his soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician, the expert in charms, you know, all of these, all of these men that they're trusting in are about to be taken away. You know, what's the message? Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. God's going to take them away. There's not going to be any choice now but to trust in the Lord as he takes them away. He's not an ogre in the sky that just can't wait to nail us across the knuckles with his yardstick. What is he doing here? He's purifying his church. He's trying to, he's calling, he's, he's, he's delivering his people is what he is doing. Verse 4, this is really instructive. I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. Here is a very powerful uh, imagery, if you will, of crass incompetence in positions of leadership. It's like these leaders are going to be like boys and infants. They're going to be woefully incompetent. Verse 5, people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder. What is meant by insolent? They're going to be rude and disrespectful uh, to their elders. There's a message for the church right there. There's a message for parenting. Listen, you can go through these verses, and I, I keep it together. If you go through these verses at home, and I hope you will, keep it together. Keep chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 4 together. In other words, don't obsess over the stuff that's in between. Keep the messages of hope that has this sandwich together. Take it the way God has given it to us. You follow me? Take it the way God... I'm trying to give it the way God has given it to us. Take it the way God has given it to us. But you'll find a lot of messages in here for parenting. 
We've got to teach our kids to respect authority. And that starts in the home. We have to teach our kids to respect our own authority. A a word that should never come out of our kids' mouths towards their parents is the word no. Yet we hear it all the time. That is not good. That is bad. Here's the deal. If a child doesn't respect his or her parents, do you think they're going to respect the Lord? It's a general, it's not an absolute, it's just a general observation. This, we've, listen, this message isn't for the world. We expect when we go to Walmart to hear that all day long. We shouldn't expect to hear it in the church. Does that make sense? It seems harmless enough right now, but our kids do not need us to be their buddies. Our kids need us to be their moms and their dads and their grandparents and their elders. They need us to be what we need to be right now for their development. Does that make sense? Here we're going to see this insolence, insolent to the, to the elder and the, this despise to the honorable. I told you this is not easy. Verse 6, for a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, shall be a ruler, and this heap of ruin shall be your rule. Things are going to get so bad that all you're going to need to be qualified to be a leader is a coat. I mean, it is kind of, I mean, if it wasn't, it, it would be humorous. I'm convinced God has a sense of humor, but this is going to be reduced to such a thing that all you're going to need is a coat. Look at it. A man will take hold of his brother, the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader. This heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And how will they respond? In that day, he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. Even those who could lead are going to refuse to take up the responsibility. There's going to be a complete vacuum of leadership. So all that you're going to have is incompetent leadership. Again, this isn't the world. We see this happen in nations. You study nations. I'm not an expert in history by any stretch of the imagination. It'd be a vivid imagination. But I know enough about history to know that one of the marks of, of a um, society that's deep decadence is infantile leadership, incompetent leadership, um, for sure. But here we see it going on in the church. Verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. See, their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. Again, this is not talking about the world. It was talking about the world. We expect that, right? We expect that. But this is talking about the church. It's possible for us to come in here and go through the motions Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, whenever we meet, And yet our hearts still be against the Lord, isn't it? It's possible for that. Let's be on our guard about that. Verse 9, for the look on their faces bear witness against them that they proclaim their sin like Sodom and they do not hide it. Here they're they're, they're boldly sinning against the God. Woe to them for they've brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Here's a glimmer of hope in the midst of all of this, isn't it? Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. Okay, that takes us back to uh, verse 22. Those who have stopped regarding man and whose nostrils is breath. That takes us back to verse 5 of chapter 2. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For those who are walking in the light of the Lord, it's going to be well. What is Isaiah doing? He's tugging us. What is Isaiah doing? He's bringing a message where the Lord is tugging us. What is he tugging us toward? To walk in the light of the Lord. 
We're being powerfully drawn to the ways of the world. And what is, what is Isaiah doing? What is God doing through Isaiah? He's very powerfully pulling our attention back to the light of the world, or light of the Lord, right? Does that make sense? Verse 11, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. In other words, he'll reap what he sows. Verse 12, my, my people are infants as... My people, infants are their oppressors. Women rule over them. My people, your, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your past. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God. Here's a message for leadership. What's being indicted right now? It's almost like God's bringing the leaders of of this time, the leaders of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He's bringing in the civil and religious leaders in, and he's saying, what are you doing? You're misleading people. Listen, man, we're, we're in a chapter of church history where to stand here and do what I'm doing right now is a strange thing. This really is a strange thing. I can't tell you over the last 15 years how many times people come up the steps, they saw what we're doing, and we never saw them again. This isn't their thing. What, but what are we doing? We're attempting to walk in the light of the Lord. That's what we're doing. We don't have any stage lights or fog machines or drums or whatever. I'm not against drums. I can do without all the lights, and there's not, as long as I'm here and I can help it, there won't be a fog machine, okay? Everybody okay with that? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Cancel the fog machine. I never liked those things. Uh, you ever been around those things before? It's sticky. It makes those sticky... I never liked that. Where are we at? Walking in the light, not in the fog. <laughs> right? What would we want fog here for? We, don't want fog. we want to clear the fog. Get that thing out of here. My people, infants are their oppressors. Women rule over them. My people, your guides, they've mislead you. They've swallowed up the course of your past. Well, yeah, if the leaders and prominent people and influential people are bringing in all these other worldviews, what's going to happen to the, to the right path? It's almost like it's going to get swallowed up. And if you look at verse uh, 14, it is you, these leaders, elders and princes of the people, if you will, who have devoured the vineyard. The vineyard's going to be a powerful... Um, emblem in chapter 5, where Israel is going to be likened to a vineyard. Here they're said to have devoured it. Look at this. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord. That's graphic, isn't it? It's one thing to take advantage of the poor and prosper on the poor. That's what they were doing. It's a whole other thing. The imagery is almost like they've taken the back of their head with their hand and taken a fistful of hair, and they're grinding their faces in the dirt. You see that imagery? And these are people, people in leadership here are people that are supposed to be caring for them, protecting them, watching out for them, teaching them, right? It, it couldn't be more opposite than what it is supposed to be. Look at verse 16. The Lord said, because of the daughters, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. Now here, for the rest of the chapter, we have an indictment against these elite women. 
her flaunting jewelry and, and mincing along. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantingly, that's an imagery of flirtatious eyes, if you will, glancing wantingly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. And I'll leave you with the last line in our mixed company uh, to look at that for yourself because it's clear enough, isn't it? It's an indictment against these ladies. Look at verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses and the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the ambulance, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles of cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Okay, what does that mean? Someone might be, someone who's sensitive this morning might be, you know, I think I'm going to slide my purse under my chair. I don't want nobody to see it. If you brought a purse in this morning, it's okay, all right? Unless, and I don't think this describes anybody here, unless you've went out and you've got this big fancy um, designer purse, which is nothing wrong with in and of itself, unless we're walking with it and parading around so that everybody can see it. You know, the imagery that's going on here is these are elite ladies. They're married to the people that are oppressing the poor and they're amassing the wealth and their ability to buy all these finery things is because they've oppressed the poor and ground their faces in the dirt. And what are they doing? They're walking along, flashing all of this stuff. They're mincing along, you know, with their, their feet, tinkling with their feet. They've got these fancy, these fancy bells on their ankles, and they walk in a certain way to ring them to call attention to, hey, look at me, look what I have. It's, um, it's an emblem of pride. But look what the outcome's going to be. Verse 24, instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. Instead of a bell, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. Branding instead of beauty. Verse 25, his near their end. Your men are going to fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit in the ground. Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread, wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. It's sad, isn't it? There's not going to be any men. They're going to lose their status. They're going to lose income. They're going to lose their security. And they're going to lose their ability to have children because there's not going to be anyone for them to marry and have children. That's the end. God is showing us what's going to happen in the future. It's certain how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. That's a subject for another day. What our subject is today is it's going to happen. That's the point here is this is what's in the future this is what's going to happen. You had enough of the darkness? Look at verse 2, chapter 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be what? Beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be, pri pri uh, shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Who's the branch of the Lord, anyone? What comes to mind as soon as you hear branch of the Lord? What do you think about? Yeah, yeah. John 15 would be a good verse. But it's, it's, a, re it's, it's a reference to Christ, isn't it? It's a reference to Jesus. In the midst of all this, we have a reference to Jesus. We're told that in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. 
You know, we can think of that day that we celebrate this time of the year, you know, uh, where the, uh, the shepherds out in the, out in the wilderness, you know, the, uh, the angels come and visit them and they tell them the things that have happened, you know. Uh, this kind of conjures that up, doesn't it? Um, the Lord is going to step into time, space, and history. He is the branch of the Lord, Christ. It'll be beautiful and glorious. Notice the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Here we see the land, the land that's been cursed. Here we're going to see that that curse is going to be reversed. Verse 3, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. And everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. You know, here we have this idea of being recorded for life. What's in view there is election for sure. But let me point something out about that. How many verses have we had concerning human responsibility in, con in contrast to how many verses we had about election? We got one verse about election, but the rest of it is about what? Come. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Why should we do that? Look what's going to happen if you don't. But look what's going to happen if you do. Verse 4, the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstain of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. You know, here's imagery that's recalling the Exodus, isn't it? And the wilderness wanderings. It's imagery that they would have understood at that time. What would they have understood that time by a cloud in the day and a, and a pillar of fire at night? What would they have understood by that? They would have understood by that the presence of the Lord, his guiding hand, his protection. I mean, when arm, Pharaoh's army comes after them, what does he do? He goes out from in front of them and comes around and goes behind them. Is there any chance that Pharaoh is going to catch them? Most powerful, arguably probably the most powerful ar army of the world at that time. There isn't a chance, one, they're going to touch them. Notice the canopy. Verse 5, the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame of fire by night for over, over all the glory there will be what? A canopy. A canopy. What is that canopy? It's God's protective hand. We really need that when we watch the news, don't we? I mean, it's really comforting. I mean, this is given to the people of God at a particular place at a particular time, people of Jerusalem, people of Judah, 6, 740 to 681 um, B.C., if you will. But what is the application of this? We watch the news. You know, you're at a basketball game, and you meet this lady, and she tells you her, her husband's on a, on a naval ship somewhere. Boy, a canopy sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Can you feel the tug? Can you, can you feel the tug? This is meant to tug us. It's meant to tug us. It's meant to tug us, and it's meant for us to tug our children to walk in the light of the Lord. Isn't that a clear message? I hope it's clear. If it's not clear, it's because I'm making it. It's because I'm muddying it up. I think it's real clear if we study it. Look at verse 6. There'll be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. How's this all going to come about? A child in a major sounds silly to the world, doesn't it? 
That's one of the brightest spots in all of Scripture, isn't it? Let me repeat that. A child in a manger sounds strange and silly to the world, doesn't it? But to those angels that are singing, it's one of the brightest lights in the entire New Testament, isn't it? Who is that canopy? He's Yahweh. Where is Yahweh? He's in that manger. For what purpose? To make good on this promise because there is a future and you can count on it. And that future, he is bringing in and he will in his time bring this in. It is certain you can count on it. And why the darkness in between? You know, why the darkness? You know, yesterday, Tammy and I went to Akron. One of my favorite places, there's this music store in Akron that we found. It's a guitar shop, and they put a music store up at the top. And, you know, I noticed that they just put that music store in, and they, they made a mistake that I made a number of years ago. You know, um, initially, when I was putting the music store together, I went and bought this real fancy pegboard. It was really nice-looking pegboard. It was, it was a wood-grained Pegboard, if you can imagine it, and was beautiful. And I bought, I'm thankfully, I maybe bought 10 sheets or 12 sheets or something. I put it up. I was all excited about it. It looked great until we put the hooks up and started hanging stuff. What do you think happened to this stuff? It blended in with, I mean, it completely blended in. I noticed their decor in there when I was looking around. They, they have these planks. It's really nice, it looks great but it doesn't display the product correctly. You know, when I saw that, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to have to eat this. I'm going to have to take this down. I took that beautiful pegboard down, and I went and bought um, slat wall about the color of Cody's shirt. You know, it was a flat black slat wall, and I put it up. What do you think that did to the merchandise? You know, you can take a lesson from the jeweler. When the jeweler shows you a precious jewel, usually he's showing you the jewel in the backdrop of black velvet, isn't he? It's dark, right? The darkness causes the light to be even brighter, doesn't it? That's what's going on here. That's what God's doing here. You have this great message of hope. You wonder, why does the prophets do this? You're going to see that repeated. It's repeated throughout where you see you get this great image of hope, and then you run through this darkness, and then all of a sudden the hope's back again. What's going on? A lesson from the jeweler. That diamond looks great no matter what. It's, if you put the diamond on, a, on, a, uh, on one of those tables back there, those white tables, it still looks good. But if you take that same diamond and you put it on top of a piece of black velvet, it looks better, doesn't it? That's what's going on here. A child in a manger may not sound like something that's that spectacular to our world. But in the backdrop of chapters 2 and 3, it's magnificent. Do you see what we've done to ourselves by ignoring these passages? We've pulled the black velvet out from underneath the jewel. We've done it thinking that we're doing a favor, buddy, a favor. Oh, people don't want to hear that. You're right about that. You're right about that. People don't want to hear it. And of all times, Rick, you're going to do this at Christmas time? Oh, people don't want to hear Is there a better time? Does anyone, should anybody have any suggestions for a better time? When is a good time to share something that nobody wants to hear? But doesn't the dark passages 
make the brightness look all that more attractive? We need to be tactful, and we best be loving as we do this. I mean, my goodness. I mean, we, you know, tactful, that's a skill that varies from person to person. A lot of times, we don't mean to be with, we don't mean to be brazen. Have you ever said things and they just, they're coming out the opposite way you want them to come out? That happens. But what we have to be, what we have to be, what we must be, all times is loving. When this is put in, I, I have discovered when this is put in a container that's loving, a lot of people will, will indeed suffer through and listen, won't they? But what's our message? God has stepped into time, space, and history in the person of Jesus. For what purpose? To go to a cross. Why? Because we're a lot like the people of God described in chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 4, verse 1, aren't we? If we're really honest. But we have a great future. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text. I thank you, Father, for everybody that's sitting here. Father, that they're willing to come and sit and work through these passages. And I thank you, Father, for the looks on everyone's faces. Everyone's like, wow, what's, this is something to think about. Father, thank you for that. I thank you, Father, for the, the, the glorious message of hope, Lord, that you give us in chapters 2 and 4. Boy, they, as we think about mountaintops, these are mountaintop. These are mountaintop promises. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you for the great light that shines. Though, Father, help us to not ignore that what is sandwiched between these two halves. Help us to not ignore that, Lord. Father, we look to you and we confess, Father. In fact, we're about to come to the table. Let us, let us confess our sins right now, Lord. Too often, too often, Lord, this describes us. Too often, you know, we let our children say no to us. And we don't think anything about it. Too often, we do buy that article of clothing to get attention. Too often, we do do these things. Lord, we can, each of us can find something in these passages. Oh, Father, forgive us, we pray. Shape and mold us, oh, Lord, and fashion us, Lord, into the people that you would have us to be, Lord. Shape and mold us, O oh Father. Lord, oftentimes we find ourselves attached to the world, attached to, you know, nothing wrong with sports or music or whatever our thing might be, Lord, but help us not to be so attached to it, Lord, that our attention is drawn away from you. But help us, O oh Father, that when we're engaged in all things, that we would do all for the glory of God. Lord, fill us. And Father, I pray, I pray, O oh Father, I pray for protection for everyone here, Lord, for the sensitive person might have a tendency to spend too much time in the darkness. Oh, Father, give us your word the way you've given us your word. As we look at these passages later, Lord, give us your word as you have given us your word. May we look at the, at the wonderful beacons of hope and not neglect them as we look at the darkness. And may we not look at the wonderful beacons of hope and neglect the darkness. But, oh, Father, may we take this together, Lord.
May we take it together. Now, Father, Lord, we desire to um, confess our sins, Lord. We, we pause for a moment, Lord, that we may confess our sins as we prepare our hearts to come to the table.